The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Last Thursday night, the National Basketball Association held their annual draft. That's the time when the representatives from the 30 teams of the NBA get together for the purpose of selecting eligible players to join their teams, the amateur ranks, the college ranks, international ranks. They're all looking for players that will help them win a championship. Well, the number one draft in the nation this year is a young man by the name of Carl Anthony Towns from the University of Kentucky. There's David giving us a little wave back there for the University of Kentucky. If you want to know more about Carl Anthony Towns, you can talk to David. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. They drafted him, the Timberwolves drafted him out of Minnesota because they were convinced he was the best player in the draft. They analyzed him. They spent a lot of time, money, energy assessing him, developing a profile on him, and they came to the conclusion, this is the guy above all the other eligible candidates that we want for our team to lead us to a championship. Listen to the book on Towns. This is his player profile. Seven feet tall, 250 pounds, seven foot, three and a half inch wingspan. Center prospect with a size and skill set to make a strong impact at both ends of the floor in the NBA. Hard worker, smart kid with strength and character. Shows desire and a competitive nature. Possesses a great feel for the game. Textbook shooting form. Great touch and ability to hit outside and mid-range jumpers. Has, steadily improving, has a steadily improving hook shot. Tremendous rebounder with big hands. Good box-out fundamentals. Post positioning and energy. Broad shoulders. Good strength. Terrific passer. Good vision. Very good shot blocker. Towns was labeled a franchise player by NBA scouts. That is, one of those guys that has the potential to take a mediocre team or a low-level team and raise it up to elite status. That's why the Minnesota Timberwolves chose him. That's why they're going to pay him a lot of money, because they believe he can do that for their franchise. And if in the next few years you read about the Timberwolves winning an NBA championship, you can be sure that all of the pundits, all of the commentators will point back to last Thursday when they drafted him convinced that he was the best available player. He'll be hailed as the savior of the Timberwolves. Skill sets, competencies, strengths, experience. Those are the obvious qualities that everybody looks for when they're putting together a sports team, or a business, or a drama troupe, or any other enterprise. You simply want to get the people who have what it takes to get you to the next level, to help you win, to do what you want to do to succeed. That just makes sense. It's just the way the world works. And it's probably one reason that we have so much difficulty understanding the Bible. Because God's ways are not our ways. That is, He doesn't operate and evaluate on the same principles that govern the way the world operates and evaluates. And when we forget that, brothers and sisters, 
we fall into all kinds of temptations to begin thinking wrongly about ourselves, about the church, about God, and about the world. God is not looking for number one draft picks or franchise players in order to accomplish His purpose in the world. In His kingdom, He's the superstar. He's the hero. He is all that is necessary. That's why Paul so strongly reminds Christians to remember our true status, our true condition when God came to us and God called us out of darkness into light. He puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, you who are trusting Jesus, stop, think about what you were, where you were when God came to you. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't need what the world evaluates as being the best and the brightest in order for God to accomplish His purpose. Today, in our ongoing study of the Old Testament book of Judges, we're going to see this point very graphically illustrated. We pick up where we left off last time, which is in the middle of the book of Judges telling us about the judge named Gideon, one of the best known of the Old Testament characters that we have uh, given to us in God's Word. Gideon was raised up at just the right time by God in order to lead Israel at a very critical juncture in its nation's history because they had been suffering for seven years from the onslaught of enemy nations that lived near them. The uh, enemy nations came in, Midianites, Amalekites, and other allies every year, and they just ravaged the nation of Israel, taking all of their livestock, taking all of their crops, forcing them, in Gideon's case, to go live in caves and hiding until they were finished with their ravaging. Our text is found in the book of Judges, the seventh chapter. We're going to read all of the seventh chapter, verses 1 through 25. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, it's found on pages 206 207. I encourage you to open up God's Word to that place and follow along as I read aloud from the book of Judges, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. So hear the Word of God as I read it aloud. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water. And I will test them for you there, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. 
So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the people, and the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And Gideon came. Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside of the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the borders of Abel Mahola by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth-barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth-barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb on the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. 
God displays His power through our weakness. God is delighted to show how strong He is by working through the weakness of His people. Nobody really likes to think of themselves as weak. We tend to avoid that self-identity. We all want to be strong. You'll never find weakness on any list of virtues. It's just the opposite, actually. We want to see ourselves up for whatever challenge we might face. Weakness is all about inadequacy. And it carries with it this nagging sense of being a failure. Several years ago, there was a Peanuts cartoon where Charlie Brown is looking kind of glum, downcast. And so Lucy comes to him and says, what's the matter, Charlie Brown? Why are you so sad? And he says, well, I just feel completely inferior. And she said, well, don't worry. He said, many people feel that way. And he said, many people feel inferior about themselves? She said, no, many people feel that you're inferior. (laughs) We don't like to think of ourselves as inferior. We certainly don't like it when people tell us that we are inferior. However, the truth is that in many ways, we are all inferior. We're all inadequate. This is especially true in spiritual matters. No one in and of himself is spiritually adequate. In the spiritual realm, we're all weak. We don't have what it takes that God requires. And rather than pretending this is not the case, we need to learn how to face up to it, to embrace it without being defeated by it. And we can do that when we come to recognize that weakness is no barrier to God. God will accomplish His purpose, His great determinations for the world in and through the weaknesses of His people. That's what He has determined to do from eternity. He displays His power through our weakness. Now let's see how this lesson is taught to us in this seventh chapter of the book of Judges. First of all, I want you to notice in these first eight verses that God requires our weakness in order to accomplish His purpose. Weakness is not something incidental or something that He just stumbles upon and says, oh, okay, now I'm going to work this out. No, He requires our weakness in order to accomplish His purpose. Look at verse 2. Isn't this interesting? God looks at Gideon with his army, army that he had gathered by sending out word to four tribes saying, come join us in what we're about to do against Midian. And God says, you're too strong. Look at verse 2. This is unusual. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. We would expect him to say, the people with you are too small. They're not enough of you. You only have 32,000. Don't you know you're going against this massive army of Midian? It's not what he says. It's counterintuitive. You won't find this kind of statement in any military manual that's ever been written. When we talk about warfare, we consider armies. Conventional wisdom is always saying we need every able-bodied available soldier we can muster. During the American Revolutionary War, one of the things that the upstart United States had to confront right off the bat was that they were facing the best equipped, best trained military force in the world in the British Army. And they were a bunch of volunteers, farmers mostly. They 
had not studied the art of warfare. They had not been drilled and trained in the art of warfare. And so Congress recognized that they were going to need tens of thousands in order to have a chance against the British Army. So they authorized a military force of 75,000. But General George Washington, who led the Continental Army, never came close to even having a third of that many troops available to him. So Congress authorized signing bonuses. They authorized incentives of giving land to anybody who would serve a certain amount of time in the army. They were doing that because they said, we need more men, not fewer, if we have any hope of winning this war. God doesn't work on that basis. You see, God is not working for mere victory, but for purposeful victory. He's working for victory that displays the kind of God he is. And so the 32,000 men were too many for God to accomplish his purpose. What's the purpose? It's explained in verse 2. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see, God is always working to put his glory on display. He's always working in everything that happens in the world to further make known the truth about himself. And he knows how quick we are to take his glory for ourselves. And so here he takes steps to ensure that it won't happen with Gideon and his army. He's going to force Gideon's army to be weak. He's going to force them to be obviously weak. Brothers and sisters, don't you find it to be true that there lurks within us this tendency to want to snatch glory away from God. I mean, don't you find it in yourself, to, those tendencies to say things, to do things, to put yourself in a position where the spotlight's turned on you, your accomplishments, where you get some of the credit for things that take place? We always are wanting to look good in the eyes of other people. When we give in to that temptation, it's because we're forgetting that all we are and all we have is by God's grace. We forget. We're really weak. And anything that is accomplished is not because we have strength in and of ourselves to fulfill God's will. It's because God has used our weakness in accomplishing His purposes. Sometimes God takes measures to remind us of just how weak we are. That's what he's doing in Gideon's army. He's going to show them in no uncertain terms that it's not their strength that will win this battle. And so, verses 3 through 8, what does he do? Well, he orders a defense cut that would make the United States Congress blush. He orders a reduction of the army by 99%, more than 99%. And he tells Gideon to do, do this in two stages. First, he says in verse 3, whoever is fearful and trembling needs to be let go. Now, that's pretty good strategy because fear is contagious. And the last thing you want in a battle is a bunch of people who are afraid to be there and are giving in to their fear. And isn't it interesting that more than two-thirds of the ones who were given opportunity when they were told, look, if you're scared, go home, took off. I mean, imagine what they would have done the first time the Midianites drew the sword. So, good strategy. You got rid of the ones who were really too fearful to be there. But then God looks at the 10,000 that remain. In verse 4, he says it again. Too many. 
still too many. 10,000 against the armies of Midian are still too many. And so he tells Gideon to send the men to the water and to watch how they drink. And those who knelt down to drink water were let go. Those who gathered the water up in their hands and lapped it are the ones who were kept. And there were 300 who did it that way. Now we're not told why God used this distinction to separate the 300 from the rest. There's been a lot of speculation about it. It's kind of fun to read opinions about this. But let me just assure you, as we will see later in the text, it wasn't because God was looking for 300 special men. These are not the special forces. Okay, This is not the SEAL team here. These are just 300 guys that he's going to show his power through their weakness. Their weakness. When the 300 men are left, these are the ones that God sends with Gideon against the Midianite forces. You know, God could have defeated the Midianites with 10,000 men. I mean, he did that in chapter 4 with Barak going against the Canaanites. That's how many men Barak led. He could defeat, defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east with one man. He's going to do that in chapters 15 and 16 with Samson. Samson defeating the Philistines. It's not a matter of number. God is making a stage. God is making a point here. He's going to demonstrate by the reduction of forces down to 300 that the victory belongs to him, not to Gideon, not to Israel. That he's the one who accomplishes it. He wants it to be evident that it's not Gideon's wisdom and power. It's not the shrewdness or the strength of the army but it is God who grants victory one of the most significant things that we as believers can do for our spiritual health is to remember that God is not simply working for victory but God rather is working for victory that demonstrates his greatness his goodness victory that demonstrates he's the one who accomplishes it. When we're thinking rightly, we remember this. We get this. We see it. God saves people completely by His grace. Nobody's ever gained God's favor by what we do. There's nobody in this room, there's nobody you know, nobody you will ever know, who can honestly say, well, God accepts me, I'm right with God because I'm a good person, because I did this, I did that. If they're thinking that way, you can be sure they don't understand the God of the Bible. They don't understand the way of the God of the Bible. Paul puts it very clearly as the apostle writes in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What that means is, when we attempt to do what we know we ought to do, we have this understanding of what's right, what's wrong, and when we make our best efforts of that, it's not good enough. We fail. Because inevitably, we go against what we know to be right. Isn't that true? You know it's true, don't you? The best of us have to admit that in our heart of hearts. We know that we're not living up to what we understand to be right and wrong. And so because we don't live this way, we need to face the reality that we're weak. We're weak. Sin has left us disabled, broken, turned away from God, and there's not anything that any of us can do to make ourselves right with God. We can't fix ourselves. That's why we need a Savior. 
That's why Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to accomplish our salvation, to make us right with God by living the kind of life that we're obligated to live, but we cannot. A life of complete obedience to God's commandments. Where in thought, word, deed, everything is just right. We don't do that. Jesus did that. And then to lay down his life on the cross in order to pay for our sins so that every one of us who has sinned against God, who trusts in Jesus as Lord, will receive on the basis of what Jesus has done, his strength, the salvation that we need that we cannot secure in our weakness. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friend, I wonder if today you have had an honest thought about your own standing before God and you would say, yeah, I know. When it comes to doing what God tells me I'm supposed to be and do, I'm weak. I, I'm not that. I'm not that. Do you, do you say that? Do you own that? Do you see that? Has God taught you that? Do you feel that? I know what's right. I know what's wrong. And I know that there are times I just give in to what's wrong and I put off what's right. If that's true of you, I've got good news for you. The good news is that the Bible declares that to be true of you. Doesn't catch God off guard. You are weak. But that's why Jesus came. He came to do for people like you what you cannot do for yourself. He came to do everything necessary to bring you into a right relationship with God because you will never be able to get yourself in a right relationship with God by your own efforts. Jesus came to save hopeless, helpless sinners. And he does save hopeless, helpless, weak sinners when we turn from our sin, confess what is true, and call him Lord. Have you ever called Jesus Lord? Have you ever, from your heart, acknowledged that He is the Lord and Savior that you need? You trust Jesus Christ, He will save you. The Bible promises this, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So my good news to you today, my appeal to you today, my encouragement to you today is call upon the Lord in your weakness. Don't hope that tomorrow you're going to be stronger. Don't, don't think that, well, if I just keep on trying, get rid of all that and acknowledge it's for weak people that Jesus died. I'm a weak person. Lord, save me. If you'll call upon him in that way, you'll throw up the white flag of surrender and attempts of living life your own way and making your life work. He'll save you. Before God leads Gideon into victory, he requires him to reduce his army to 300 men. He does this because God requires weakness to accomplish his purpose. But the next thing that I want us to see in this text is that God reassures us in our weakness by giving us his word. Verses 9 through 14, there's an interesting little uh, almost parenthesis here in the story of what God does with Gideon. Gideon and his Army initially had been camped about five, about five miles from the Midianites. The Midianites were north of them. They go down to the water and they get somewhat closer. The Midianites are down in the valley. They're up on a mountain. And God comes to Gideon and he commands Gideon to attack. Verse 9, he says, Arise, 
go down to the camp. And, and he does it with a promise. He says, I have given it into your hand. Now that's wonderful. Do this. I'm assuring you victory. But then God offers reassurance to Gideon if he's afraid. You see this? I mean, look at verses 10 and 11. But if you are afraid, afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pur, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Isn't it amazing? This tells us something about God, doesn't it? He says, you go down, fight this battle, I'm guaranteeing your victory. But Gideon, if you're afraid, if you're fearful, then take your armor bearer, take your, your servant with you, the guy who's attending you, and you go down and just listen, and you'll be strengthened with what you hear. He doesn't dismiss Gideon because of his fearfulness. You think about it, Gideon had reasons, good reasons to be afraid. For seven years in a row, Midianites had come and camped in this valley in order to get ready to be a, a, a launching pad, a, a staging grounds for their onslaught against the tribes of Israel. Seven years in a row, they've chased the Israelites up into the mountains to live in caves, chased them away from their homes, devastated their land. Gideon has an army of 300. 300. Untrained volunteers. When he goes down, <clears throat> the point of his being outnumbered is underscored by the author in verse 12. Look at the way he describes what the scene was when Gideon and his servant go down to the camp to listen in. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. 300 men. An army that looks like a horde of locusts. And their camels, which made them even more fierce, were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. No wonder Gideon was afraid. But what does God do? What does he do to his servant who he's given a great promise to, given clear command to, and the servant is still timid, fearful? What does he do? He comforts him. He consoles him. He gives him reassurance. So he sends a dream to one of the enemy soldiers. A bizarre dream. An unlikely dream. And then he gives one of the comrades of the soldier the ability to interpret the dream. And then he causes that conversation about the dream to take place just at the time that Gideon with his servant gets down there within earshot to hear it. So in verse 14, the comrade answered the guy that had the dream, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What does this tell us? I mean, th this is amazing to stop and consider this scene. It tells us several important truths about our lives as children of this God. First, it reminds us that God often calls us to do things that are way out of our comfort zone. 300 men against a Midianite army, and then just even to sneak down within earshot of the sentry for their camp. He tells us, he calls us at times to do things far beyond our abilities. 
things that are way beyond our experience. But Lord, I can't. I haven't. God in his word, when he speaks to us, oftentimes is saying to us to engage in things that we feel like are way beyond what we're capable of doing. It's the way of God with his children. But secondly, this also shows us that God doesn't crush his children who are afraid. He doesn't write off his children who are fearful in the face of the challenges that come from doing his revealed will. It's not the way God is. He's gentle with us. He's patient with us. Matthew quotes the Old Testament when he describes Jesus to us as one who a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Brothers and sisters, have you ever found your faith burning low where you just feel like, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow a Christian. I don't know, it's just filled with doubt, filled with fears. And then acknowledging the truth about your spiritual life in that moment. Do you ever feel yourself tempted to just be so ashamed? And just begin to think, I disgust myself, I must disgust God. It's not the way God is. God's not like you and me. He's gentle with His people. He's compassionate with His people. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Don't let fear paralyze you from doing God's will. Acknowledge it. He knows it. He cares for you. He won't discard you. He's gentle with His fearful people. That's another lesson we learned from this. A third lesson is this. This tells us that God gives assurance to weak, fearful children. He revealed to Gideon assuring promises. He gave him a token of what was going to happen. He'd already told him he was going to give him the victory, but now he speaks to Gideon and he instructs Gideon by putting him in a circumstance where Gideon actually hears the enemy say the same thing. He may have spoken to Gideon audibly. We don't know how he did it. God did that in Old Testament times. But just as certainly as he spoke to Gideon audibly, brothers and sisters, he continues to speak to us today through his written word. And God has given to us a multitude of reassuring truths, comforting words in the Scripture. When you stop and consider the commands of God, the will of God revealed in the Bible, take, for example, Jesus' instructions, His command, His commission to go into all the world and to make disciples of all the nations. When you consider that, as a Christian, do you ever feel intimidated by that? If you just break it down and understand that what Jesus is telling His people to do in that commission is to go to unconverted people, people who do not love Jesus, do not know Jesus, do not trust Jesus, and He tells us to persuade them to trust Jesus, to become a disciple. Does that make your heart just kind of, I don't know, who, me? Well, if so, then you can be sure. God understands that. God knows that. And he gives an assuring word with that. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, go do this. He says, go do this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not out there by yourself. When that coworker raises a question, opens an opportunity for you to speak about eternity, about heaven, hell, righteousness, Christ, forgiveness, grace, mercy. And you think, here's 
God's given me this opportunity. I need to speak. And you think, oh, I'm so afraid of speaking. I'm so embarrassed. I hope nobody knows about this opportunity that I blew. You can be sure God is with you. Jesus is with you. He understands your weakness. He understands your fear. Don't believe that he dismisses you. He's put out with you. We have in the scriptures abundant promises from God's word to comfort us and reassure us in our fear. When my children were much younger, there was a time when one of my daughters was very afraid of the water. And we were on a little vacation and we were at a pool. And so I determined that I was going to help her overcome her fear of water. So she's on the edge of the pool. I said, jump. I'm right there. I said, I'll catch you. Jump. And she just wants to jump. And she said, I'm afraid. I said, I understand you're afraid, but I'm here. I will catch you. And so we went back and forth like this. She was terrified of the water. Sure, she was going to die. She jumped in the water. And yet here's her dad telling her to jump. This is just, just jump. I'm your father. You're my child. Jump. So she's got that. So she's torn. She's torn. And I don't think I handled everything just right, for the record, uh, in how that whole scene went. But one thing that I did, one thing that I did is I tried to reason with her. I said, look, you know, I protected you. You remember the time, and you remember how, and I've, I haven't lost one of your siblings yet, you know, I mean, all of these things. And, and I was trying to reason with her with reassurances of the way that I had dealt with her. One of the far superior way. That's what God does with us. He sets before us his will. He says, child, this is how you're to live. This is what you're to do. And you can trust me. I'm with you. You can count on me to help you through this. When he reveals his will to us, he tells us that we're to love him supremely. We're to love other people sincerely. We're to pursue holiness. We're to resist temptation. All of those things and other specific instructions are given in his word. And then, whenever we find ourselves faced with being loyal to him and his way, at the expense of being ridiculed, maybe even threatened, and fear begins to well up in us, well, if I take this stand, if I don't back off, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my friends, I might lose family. Be sure he knows, he cares, he's with you. He gives us in his word multiple, multiple expressions, reminders of his loving compassion and provision for our weakness. So he says to us, as clearly as he said to Gideon, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You think, yes, Lord, but I know I'm living at the end of the month and there's no money. And so there's lots of temptations that come with not having money. And I know what you say about money. And I know what you say about resisting temptation. I don't know what to do. God says to you, child, look at Jesus. He's my only begotten son. The son of my love. I sent him to a cross for you. I had him crucified for you. Do you think that I would withhold from you whatever you need at the end of the month? Or when you find yourself at your wits end and emotionally spent and you just don't know that you can take another step. God says to you in Isaiah 40, verse 29, 
That he's the one who gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Are you fainting? Are you without strength? Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fail, fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run, not be weary. They shall walk, not be faint. This is God's word to you. This is God's reassurance to you. This is him saying, go down to the enemy camp and just listen. Listen to what I say. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to let you go. Wait on me. I will give everything that you need to you in order to help you to mount up, to be restored, to be strengthened in pursuing my will. He says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So you think, how can this work for my good? My family's a disaster. My personal life's a disaster. I find myself here again, right back where I promised never to go. How can this work together for my good? And, and yet the promise of God is it does. I will. It's not justifying your sin. Own your sin. But don't think that even your sin can overthrow my ultimate purpose. He's working. Well, these are just some of the reassuring words that Scripture give us that come to us just as certainly, just as authoritatively as any audible words that he spoke to Gideon. And when Gideon heard the reassurance of his God, what did he do? How did it land on him when God came and said, just go down and listen to this guy talk about his dream? When he heard the man talk and the interpretation given, how did he respond? Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. That's what assurance does for a believer. That's what happens when God brings his word to you and convinces you that this word is true. It's for you right now. You worship. You worship. You praise this God of incredible grace of reassuring mercy. And then you put your hand to the plow to pursue whatever course that He's called you to do. We praise and we obey. We, be, we get set free to take great risks to do His will. That's exactly what Gideon did. It's still 300 men against an onslaught of enemy forces. But Gideon, with the assurance of God, gets those men ready and he moves them out. We need to let the assurances of God's word calm our fears by believing what he says to us. Then in weakness, in our weakness, venture out to do his will, trusting him for every step along the way. God requires our weakness in order to accomplish his purpose. He reassures us in our weakness by giving us his word. The third and final point I want to show to you this morning from this text is found in verses 16 through 25, that God rewards our weakness by granting his victory through faith. He rewards our weakness by granting his victory. Aware of his weakness, full of assurance, Gideon devises a strategy. Verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, weakness does not justify passivity. Sometimes we wrongly reason that way. Well, I'm weak. I can't do anything, so I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. You're not thinking right if you allow your felt weakness justify inactivity, passivity. Weakness motivates us to use all that God has entrusted to us 
to accomplish His will. You think about it, 300 volunteers are no match for the well-trained, well-equipped forces of the Midianites in a hand-to-hand combat. So what does Gideon do? He begins to think. He begins to strategize. So he divides his 300 men into three groups of 100 each. He gives them trumpets, gives them clay jars, and he gives them torches. You might think, wouldn't a spear or a sword be nice too? But he doesn't do that. He's thinking from his weakness, assurance of God's purpose to save. And then he instructs them in verse 17. You watch me. You follow me. You do what I do. And then Gideon and his army win the victory. They get the victory, but they get it because of the power of the Lord. Gideon's 300 men confuse and rout the Midianites. Verse 19, they go to surround the camp of the Midianites. Verse 21 indicates they were perhaps all around the Midianite camp. And verse 19 at the end says they did this at the beginning of the middle watch. The middle watch. Typically, there were three watches over the course of a night for ancient empires like this. They had a watch from 8 o'clock at night to midnight, midnight to 4, 4 to 8 o'clock. And they would divide their army up into thirds. So one third was to be alert for the first watch, second third for the second watch, third third for the last watch. And so what this means is that precisely at midnight, just as the guard is changing, Gideon and his 300 men launched their activity. Can't even call it an attack. Their activity. It's pretty brilliant. Because there would have been 300 men leaving the outskirts of the camp, having spent four hours watching, tired, probably sleepy, going back to the camp. There would have been 300 men who may have already been asleep, having been awakened to come to take their posts at night. And then there were, not 300 men, there would have been one-third, and then one-third of the Midianites asleep still in their tents. So Gideon has the men with torches in hand and jars over the torches, break the torches so that the sky begins to be lit up by these 300 torches around the camp, and they begin to shout, and they blow the trumpet, and those men who are fresh on their posts are thinking, what happened? Those men going back to the camp maybe turn around to hear what's happening. The people in camp wake up. They in, at night can't tell who it is, see people with swords coming into the camp. You can understand how chaos erupted. It's a good strategy. Whether God directly gave the strategy to, to Gideon or not, we're not told. But what we are told is that the result was the people turned against themselves. And isn't it weird, isn't it interesting what the people actually shouted in verse 20? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They didn't have a sword. The only swords were in the Midianites' hands. They had trumpets and torches. And yet the swords were turned against themselves and the Midianite army began to wipe out themselves. Each man did what he was commanded to do. Verse 21 says he stood his ground. And when Gideon's army did this, the Midianite army ran. They cried out and fled. Verse 22 says that in their confusion, they turned on each other and began to kill each other. Gideon and his small army routed the Midianites. But then there's verse 22 that tells us how it happened. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. God did it. 300 men 
trumpets, torches, jars of clay. They're not going home saying, man, you should have seen me. <laughs> yeah, those Midianites were scared. We put them running. Why, well, I, just, I just blew my trumpet. You know, I just held my torch. You know, I mean, there's no bragging in that, right? There's no glory in that. This is God's work. This is what God did. The rest of the chapter describes some of the cleanup work that happened with that battle. We'll look at that in the aftermath, God willing, next time in study of chapter 8. But what we see here is that in Gideon's weakness, God's power was put fully on display. A weak believer, assured by God's promises, committed to God's ways, will always find God's strength at every step of obedience to God's will. So who gets the credit? Not Gideon, not the army of 300 men. God gets the credit. He is the hero of this battle. He is the Savior of His people. Brothers and sisters, that's always true of any spiritual battle, of any spiritual accomplishment. God's the one who brings it to pass. He's the one who deserves to get all glory, all honor. Sometimes, as is here, we see here in the case of Gideon, God takes extra steps in order to ensure that his power is put on display through his people's weakness. You know, seeing this event in Gideon's life and how it worked out helps us to make sense of that rather cryptic remark that's written in Hebrews chapter 11 about Gideon. In Hebrews 11, there are people from the Old Testament listed as great people of faith, men and women, and then the author says that the, his time, he doesn't have time to talk about Gideon, Japheth, and Samson, and others, but he describes them as this way in verse 34. Those who were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. That was Gideon. He was made strong out of his weakness. Brothers and sisters, that's what God does for us. He requires weakness in order that he might put his strength on display. And he comforts us in our weakness with reassurances from his word. And then he rewards our weakness with victory that show he's the one who has brought it to pass. Have you ever found yourself wishing that you had all the skills and all the competencies and all of the credentials to be a, a number one pick? To be the person, the go-to person, the one that everybody would look to. Have you ever found yourself just frustrated with your weaknesses? Maybe it's physical weakness through a disability, an illness, old age. Or maybe it's an emotional inward weakness where you just find yourself at the end of your tether so quickly and feeling yourself unable to carry out what you're supposed to do day by day and you just, you just know you're weak. Maybe your weakness is in other areas, relationships or in leadership or any number of other areas where you just feel yourself to be lacking so much. And if you had to evaluate yourself, you would honestly say, I'm just weak. All of us are weak spiritually. None of us has what it takes spiritually to live the way God has taught us to live. Even the strongest spiritually minded people among us are weak. 
That's why we sin. That's why we sin. We know better than we do. We know better than we think. We know better than we say. Why? Because we're weak. We're weak. We must not let ourselves wrongly conclude that our weakness is somehow a barrier to spiritual life and growth. Gideon's story reminds us that God displays His power through our weakness. Gideon defeated the Midianite army not in spite of his weakness, but because of his weakness. God did it. God accomplished the victory on the platform of his weakness so that all praise, honor, glory would go to God. Brothers and sisters, that's what God does with us. So when you think, well, I'm just too weak, I don't have what it takes, and you begin to shrink back, and let that become an excuse from pursuing the way that God's called you to live. You're not thinking rightly. Rather, see your weakness and acknowledge, okay, my weakness is no barrier to God. God can make strength out of my weakness. God can use me. And when things happen through my life, when efforts are made through my energies and God brings about things, the glory has to go to Him because if you know me, if you see me, you know, no way. I could do that. That's what God did for Gideon. He put him in a position where his only hope for victory was for God to intervene and act. He wanted Gideon to know, yes, he indeed was weak. But not only to know his weakness, he wanted him to embrace his weakness so that as he marched out to that army of the Midianite camp, he knew in no uncertain terms, if God doesn't act, we're going to be slaughtered. 300 people against this marauding army, army, no way we can measure up to that. And that's the lesson that God still wants his children to learn today. The Apostle Paul, as an apostle, had to keep learning this lesson. I take great comfort in that. Read 2 Corinthians. You'll see it all the way through 2 Corinthians. First chapter, sickness came, weakness came. He said that was so God would teach us that we should trust God who raises the dead, not ourselves. And then in chapter 12, Paul writes about this thing that he calls a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't identify it for us. But it was something that was so debilitating to him that he wanted to get rid of it. He thought his life would be better, he'd be a better apostle, more effective if he had this thorn in the flesh removed. What was it? We don't know. Maybe it was physical weakness, maybe blindness, maybe sickness. We don't know. Could have been a person, a person that just taunted him and tormented him and continued to try to thwart him throughout his apostolic ministry. But whatever it was, Paul, as an apostle, prayed fervently, faith filled prayers three times. Lord, deliver this from me. Take it away from me. And God didn't do it. Despite the desperate pleas of his apostle, he did not remove the thorn in the flesh. Why? Was he angry at Paul? No. Was he punishing Paul for some sin? No. Because God was determined to get victory in Paul's life in a way that showed that God was the one doing it, not Paul. And so he left it there with him to teach him, to train him that his power is displayed in our weakness. Listen to the way Paul puts this as he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Brothers and sisters, are you weak? Do you know that you're weak? Then see your life as a stage built by God on which He is determined to display His strength, His power, perfecting His power in your weakness. When you see this, you'll be able to say with Paul, when I'm weak, I'm strong. This is the way of Jesus Christ, who, though He was eternal God, the Son of God, humbled Himself in human frailty and then gave up His life on the cross as if He were powerless in order to do for those of us who are truly powerless what we cannot do for himself, for ourselves. We need to understand that this is the way of Christ. It's the way we begin the Christian life. Confessing our weakness, our need, coming to Him for the strength of salvation and grace. And it's the way that we will continue to grow in our lives as Christians. By continuing not to posture and pose and try to call attention to ourselves so people will think well of us, but to just acknowledge the truth about ourselves. We are what we are by the grace of God. Left to ourselves, we're weak. We don't live one day the way we're supposed to live. We're weak. We have a strong Savior. We have a Savior who manifests His power in our weakness. We have a God who's determined to take our weaknesses and turn it into a platform so that the world can see how strong, how great He is. That's how we're called to live. Knowing this, trusting this God, not letting our weakness become an excuse for not pursuing His will, but learning to live by faith, doing His will, trusting God for the grace and the strength at every step. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us in the life and ministry of Gideon. Thank You that You made an example of him and his army, of what You're able to do. I pray You'd help us as weak people to embrace our weakness, knowing that in doing so, we are actually embracing Your strength, Your sufficiency. Help us to live by faith in the only one who is strong enough to save. For we pray in his name. Amen.